You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Zach Taylor, who is Professor of Public Policy at Georgia Tech, Georgia Institute of Technology, and also the author of The Politics of Innovation, Why Some Countries Are Better Than Others at Science and Technology. Welcome, Zach. It's great to be here. I think a lot of people in the business world and also in the public sector are really interested, and particularly in academia, are super interested in why is it that some countries develop more and more quickly than other countries. But in particular, I think we're interested in why is it that innovation seems to occur at uneven rates across different countries. Now, you point out in the book that science and technical knowledge can diffuse relatively rapidly, and so that the consumption of this is a little bit more even, but the production of it, the innovation part, that seems to be very unevenly distributed. And you you cite something called Cardwell's Law, which I'd never heard of before I read this book, which investigates this question, and you emphasize the political aspects of it. So I'd really like to dig into... First of all, what evidence do we have that this innovation is unevenly distributed? What are the different kind of theories that attempt to explain this? And why is it that that your theory is contributing a new insight, one that emphasizes conflict and pressure from the external forces of competition? That's a lot to cover, but maybe we'll just start off with what is this Cardwell's law and what evidence do we have that innovation seems to be uneven and sporadic over time and place. So Cardwell was a historian of science and technology, and he noticed that no nation or society stays in the lead for very long. And that's basically his law that eventually it's going to, whoever's in the lead in one generation will fall and another one will take over. And he didn't have a great explanation for it. I got out of this as I was originally studied physics. My first degree was in physics and superconductors. And this is back in the 80s and 90s when Japan was the next big big thing, the big challenge to American S&T. And it didn't make any sense. France or Italy, these other countries had centuries of histories in this cutting edge science technology. They had all of the money and support of the post-World War II regime. Meanwhile, Japan was a relative newcomer. It had been an occupied nation without a whole lot of capital, without a lot of natural resources. And yet it was Japan that was skyrocketing from the 60s to the 70s, the 80s to 90s, to become the leader that was threatening even the great United States, right? Surpassing its rivals in Western Europe. And this didn't make sense. And you can tell stories like that going back through history. So that's what first started getting me out of this, because as a physicist, you're trained that science is all about efficiency and coming up with the right research and the methods. But the deeper you got into it, you realize there was a lot of politics that went into deciding which were the right questions to answer, which were the right methodologies that you would use, and which labs got the funding or not in order to pursue these, and then which got published or not, that there was a political aspect to it, and that this wasn't being picked up on the sort of economic side, on the politics side. So I came from that trajectory, wanting to bring these insights from, I guess, inside the lab, as I experienced, into the social sciences, into economics and politics. So in particular, you're talking about the uneven distribution of science and technology, not necessarily the uneven amount of economic progress or development, but there does appear to be a strong correlation between advances in science and technology and kind of economic growth. 
Definitely. And that's classic endogenous growth theory, right? For the economists yeah. listening, the countries that come up with the new ideas and implement them in the form of new technology, their economies can expand quite rapidly, get a lot of productivity growth, economic growth. But you don't necessarily have to invent this stuff. You can beg, borrow, cheat, steal, copy, import, buy, and skip ahead. And this is what a lot of the East Asian countries get accused of, right? Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, that they didn't invent a lot of stuff. Nevertheless, they were able to outcompete and then innovate on their own on top of whatever they imported or copied and still be quite competitive. Whereas other countries were not doing this. And the kicker is a lot of this stuff, a lot of the science is open source, right? It's published in the journals. So you can go, you don't have to do the, a lot of the original science. You can just pick up the journal articles. You can buy technology and reverse engineer it. So it should be wide open for anyone to jump in. And yet we find maybe a dozen countries that are responsible for the vast amount of innovation, new science and technology going on in the world. And then you get some really high performers like the US, the, who else are we talking about? Japan, Sweden, Canada is up there, Switzerland, Germany. These are the most innovative countries going back decades. Meanwhile, you've got this, these mid-level innovators, mostly in Western Europe. So the Netherlands, France, Great Britain, Denmark, Norway, Belgium, maybe if you want to reach down to New Zealand and Australia down in, in the South Pacific, who are sort of even paced. They're not really changing a whole lot. They're jockeying for position amongst each other, but not changing a whole lot. And then you get these rapid innovators. Here I'm talking about Finland, Taiwan, Israel, Singapore, Korea. These are folks that were barely innovating at all. They weren't even on the map, or maybe they were mid-level innovators uh, 50 years ago. And they've taken up taken off through all the mid-level innovators and into the ranks of the highest level innovators within a generation. So why are these guys doing it and not some of these Western European countries? And there are all sorts of theories out there that try to explain it, but none of them do it very well. And that's where I saw my stuff coming in. Now, endogenous growth theory really emphasizes the importance of, of institutions, right? You have to provide incentives for people to invest in in innovation. And part of this is about providing the infrastructure of, of property rights, but also some people emphasize the importance of government investment in things like primary research and development, education, and so forth. And I think you, you kind of walk through the, the five pillars that more or less everybody agrees are important in this story. But then you do, I think, a fairly comprehensive empirical analysis to try to demonstrate that there's no simple, straightforward correlation between any of these individual pillars and the variation that we see in innovation. So I was wondering if you could kind of walk through the degree to which there is, in fact, a consensus around these pillars and the degree to which there has emerged sort of a consensus that it's really an institutional story. You say institution, institutions matter with an exclamation point. You say that repeatedly through the book as a summary of the consensus. Could you just walk through what exactly is the the consensus that I think it's a combination of endogenous growth theory and Doug North style new institutional economics. Exactly. There's a general consensus about how countries can be more innovative, right? You want to subsidize education, especially in science, technology, engineering, math. You want to provide intellectual property rights to give individuals and their firms a little bit of a head start in bringing these new inventions to market and creating products. You want to subsidize basic research in science and technology because the risks are very high and there are tons of spillovers that can happen. You want to trade policy, maybe protect some of your market 
competitive S&T coming from across borders that might drown out your domestic production. And everyone generally agrees upon these. However, no matter how you measure the outputs of science and technology, whether it's papers or patents or products or industries, competitiveness, however you do it, there's not a strong correlation between any of these measures or all of them. There are some countries that have wonderful investments in education, but aren't putting out much in the new in the way of new science and technology. New countries with strong patent rights that aren't performing that well. And you can go down the list and also find the flip side. You could find some countries that aren't subsidizing very well or aren't protecting their property rights very well, nevertheless have strong histories. So what I come out in the book's finding is that these institutional and policy solutions, they explain how countries innovate. They don't explain why countries use these institutions and policies in order to do so. Take, for example, universities. In the U.S., universities are a huge part of the innovation story, right? A lot of basic science and technology comes out of the universities, a lot of spinoffs, garage startups, and they go out to the public sphere. And that's great. Or it's university research that goes into the military, then that gets into the public sphere in terms of the products. But there are countries with... Long history, centuries longer of universities that do cutting edge science and research, but they're not really resulting in lots of innovation rates. In fact, in some countries, these universities, they may be funded enormously, but they turn into signatures. They're turf, they're jurisdiction, they're fiefdoms for individual faculty members to sort of be lords over, and they're not really that productive. So also intellectual property rights. They can be used to foster innovation, to protect innovators in a highly competitive space, or they can be used to protect folks like, I'm just pulling this out because Disney's in the news, but they're the protecting their trademark, right? Trademark law is basically Disney law. Every time the trademark period runs out, Disney gets it renewed through Congress. It's basically protecting Mickey. And you do get some countries where patent law is used to protect the status quo of the big producers and therefore preventing new competitors from coming in. So education funding, it can go into highly competitive S&T education models where the great minds succeed and move up and the failures get pushed out and other stuff, or it can go into just bureaucratic spending and turf battles. So just having institutions and policies aren't enough. They need to be used in order to foster innovation, new science and technology, rather than to protect oneself, to fill one's pockets, to help out one's buddies, outright corruption, from inefficiency to outright corruption. And I think that's why we see this non-correlation between the good institutions, the good policies, the good public goods, and not the outputs in science and technology. You make this distinction between the how and the why. And I think the why part is really, I think, about historical explanation. Like you're trying to find what are the predictors of success, but people also are interested in kind of policy advice. So if we take the policy advice part of the story, if a policymaker came to you and said, Hey, listen, I'm really interested in fostering the conditions for development, growth, science and technology advancement and so forth, you would still recommend a suite of policies that line up very closely with these five pillars. But you would presumably say, yeah, but if you want to make sure that it gets applied correctly, you need something else, some extra kind of motivation that's permeating all of the actors in the system. Economists will appreciate this. Competition ends up being the key. And what part of the book even brings this out to being the internationally competitive competition space? 
But ultimately, if I'm talking to a policymaker, I'm telling them that they want to pump all these resources into a competitive space. So sure, you want to spend money on education, basic research and development, and all sorts of other good things. We want to make sure that there's competition for this. The example I give is professional football or college football. We just don't do free market. Let it, you know, pick random players off the street, throw them on the field and see what happens. We train, choose the best competitors out there. We give them coaches, weight rooms. We give them nutritionists and special diets and advanced training. But once they're on the football field, they have to make it or break it on their own. And if they don't, they wash out. And if they do, they go on and win a Super Bowl or whatever bowl you're trying to win. And I think that thinking about that model is we want to, uh, technically, I, say, I call it subsidized competition, but that's not a very sexy term. So I'm trying to come up with a better one. But yeah, you want to pump resources into this, both on the supply side and the demand side, but make sure it's a competitive space whether it's for the individual scientists and engineers who are training or for the companies that they're going to wind up working for or even creating the product spaces, you've got to have that element of competition or you're going to wind up with this turf field, protective turf building that's going to stagnate over time. And then if you step back one level and you say, okay, what are the conditions that led to the successful implementation of these five pillars? There's a lot of theories related to the political systems, democracy. So I think the North and wine gas story is one around democracy playing a huge role. Then there's also the varieties of capitalism story that you reference, which I think is closer to Robinson and Esamoglu. And then there's the decentralization story. And so I think you, you walk through each of these stories and you find them wanting in, in many ways and that they don't seem to also provide good quality predictions of which countries are going to be successful. Could you walk through those stories as well and, and tell us what are the limitations of those explanations? Daron Asimoglu is my white whale. I was a graduate student while he was at MIT. He's still there. But his big story, and it builds on the Douglas North story, that if you get the macro political institutions right, specifically democracy, and within that decentralized democracy, then you're going to wind up with an innovative economy. But empirically, you can show that just doesn't work. There are, uh, like Spain is one of the most decentralized democracies of our time. And it went from a highly centralized autarky up through the 1970s. So for the 1970s onwards, it decentralized. And during that period, its innovation rate has not changed compared to relative to other countries. And we have countries that have become more centralized. Japan has edged a little bit more centralized. Other countries have edged more centralized. And yet their innovation rate has not change. When you get other countries that have like the, the Finland, the South Korea, Taiwan, that have innovated, a lot of them innovated before they democratized. So the cause and effect just don't match up. And no matter how you slice it, even if you select on the dependent variable, you cannot get the Asimoglu story to work. And my argument is what's missing is the international aspect that Asimoglu is only looking internally. And that it's the external conditions that are the real trigger. And that countries have choices. They can innovate on their own or they can import it. They can export oil or wheat or agriculture, whatever it is, import, you know, bring in the money and then spend that money to import technology, right? Why nations innovate and keep that competition, keep things going, is when they fear some sort of external threat. Either they're like Taiwan, where they fear, or Japan, where they fear some sort of, oh, so Japan, where they fear some sort of direct invasion, right? Taiwan, Israel, 
They fear that they're going to get taken over, so they need a strong military. In order to have a strong military, they need a highly competitive economy. Or, and this is where the trans story might come in, they're more worried about strategic inputs, energy, food, that they cannot produce themselves. Therefore, they need a very competitive economy so they can earn the currency by which to pay for these strategic imports. And if we go back in time to, say, 1950, and in the book, I take a look at Mexico, Ireland, South Korea. And if you're going to bet on who's going to be the big economic competitor 50 years hence, you bet Mexico. It was wealthy. It was right next to the United States. So it had access to all this cutting edge s and It had a key trading partner. It had the money to afford it with all the oil. So you'd say, and it was already relatively developed compared to the other two. South Korea and Ireland were fringe economies. They were agricultural basket cases in a lot of ways. But each of them, in their own way, felt a, a certain threat. Mexico, there's no real threat from the United States, right? They're not going to get invaded. They're a partner. And they have plenty of oil. And they have a lot of agricultural production, so they can afford whatever they need. So they didn't invest in s and where South Korea did. South Korea was right at the battle lines, the, cutting, the, the front lines of the Cold War. And it needed to innovate if it wanted to defend itself and earn the foreign exchange or to afford all the things that it needed. Same story with Japan. Ireland was suffering all of these emigrations of its youth. It had no competitive industries. All its best and brightest were going abroad, and they weren't sure that they could compete. So they began to develop some of the institutions that other countries did, although they did it not to much as an extent because the threat wasn't as, as much. It reminds me a bit of, I think it was Charles Tilly that made this argument about the emergence of, of Europe. And he said that it was driven by, by warfare and the constant competition between these fragmented states in, in Europe. But you're not referring to war specifically. You're referring to external threats more generally. And I think the, the nuance there is that even that's not sufficient. It has to be that the external threats are greater in magnitude than the internal divisions. And if the internal divisions are too big, then they'll overwhelm. So first of all, I'll talk empirically, there seems to be support for this, but could you go into the mechanisms for this? So why exactly does, that, does it work that way? Science and technology are distributive. They create winners and losers. And that's why it's not a no-brainer to invest in S&T. Because when S&T takes off, jobs are going to be lost, companies are going to be destroyed, status quo industries are going to go away, and a lot of people are going to lose out. Also, where are you going to get the money to spend on the S&T, right? You're going to have to tax people, spend less on, say, welfare or subsidies in one area in order to fund the S&T research development in the other. And those losers from S&T are well-established. So they're going to say, no, 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 no. We don't want that new tech. It's dangerous. It's a threat to our culture, right? These are longstanding industries or sectors in our country that have been there for ages. The Japanese, their offense of the rice industry, even though they've been able to, to shift other monies over. Or just the rich and the poor. If one geographic region is going to benefit or one ethnic group or religious group is going to fit, benefit at the expense of others, then the other one is going to push back. So there's all these distributive politics within the country and my argument is when these distributive politics are higher than the external threat, when your sense of threat from your rival within your country is bigger than your sense of threat from something outside of the country, then you're not going to invest in SNT. After all, why should I make this other person rich at my expense? What's the motivation? The motivation comes when the external threat gets high enough that we're going to lose everything, right? It, may, it could be a war, but it doesn't need to be a war. It could be a threat of war. It could just be a threat of 
we're not going to be able to import energy or food or some other strategic thing that we need in order to survive as a country. And it's those negotiations which people say, okay, we are willing to bear the burden. And there may be some deal-making within the country to compensate the losers for the expenses that they're going to make. Yeah, I found parallels between your story and the story that we hear very often at the corporate level. So corporations are always trying to figure out how to innovate. And usually it's the corporate immune system that shuts down these efforts at innovation because there's going to be losers. In particular, the folks who are at the top of the heap on top of the cash generating parts of the business, the the parts that are doing well, the folks that are entrenched, and those folks are going to be dislodged. Maybe there's channel conflicts. You're on the sales team and this new initiative is going to undermine and compete directly with whatever it is that you're selling to the clients and the customers. And when I teach courses on innovation at the corporate level, we're really spending all of our time talking about politics. Right? Like, how do you, how do you figure out how to neutralize this immune system that corporations have? So, I think you're talking about this immune system at the national level, and you have some amazing stories. I, I didn't know about the early automobiles in the 19th century, so maybe you could tell us a bit about those stories and also the story of the military. It's it's astonishing how resistant militaries are to change when they're the ones that are presumably seeing the threats firsthand. That's a great chapter. I love telling these stories because they're so surprising and the politics are so fun and interesting. So we think of automobiles as being invented in the 1890s and these people fussed around and they really took off with Ford in the early 1900s. That's not true. The first automobiles appeared in Britain in the late 1820s, early 1830s, and they were steam driven and they began to compete with the early railroads. So the railroads went to parliament and it became known as the railroad parliament and basically taxed and regulated them out of existence so that automobiles now had all sorts of crazy regulations. You had to have someone going ahead a hundred yards with a red flag waving an automobile is coming so they wouldn't scare the horses. They had speed limits on them so they couldn't be able to compete with carriages or ultimately railroads and eventually just killed the profits. And these became known as red flag laws that prevented the spread of automobiles. And other countries began to adopt them, including the U.S., throughout the 1800s. So it didn't make any sense to innovate and do research on automobiles because there's no profit to be made. It's only after railroads had saturated the geography and there were smaller, shorter routes that they clearly didn't cover, that hobbyists and small innovators began to pick it up again in the 1880s. But even trucking itself was regulated out of existence until World War I because trucks did compete with the railroads because that's longer haul. So it's when World War I came along and there was so much demand for freight that there just was no, the railroads couldn't defend themselves and be perceived as legitimate. So that's when we see trucking taped off. The military is famous. There are great stories of how the military, the Navy resisted the adoption and innovation in radio because when ships sail out to sea, they're no longer in communication with the War Department. And those ship's captains and admirals want to be their own bosses. They don't want to have to take orders from Central. So that they fought against the rail, the uh, radio transmissions. They would show up on the ship and they'd lead them in their boxes or they'd assign some non-com to man them who didn't understand how to use them. So they were considered dysfunctional. And the air power, the fighter pilots in the Air Force have resisted all sorts of technologies, cruise missiles and recently drones for years because they saw them as in competition with their own, because 
what is the glory, where's the reward, and where is the resources and status of firing a missile over the horizon somebody can't see or manning a drone from a comfortable chair in the Pentagon that's flying over Afghanistan. So although these technologies are now commonly used, they took years to overcome lots of internal politics in order to get so. You also use the example of the blood testing around HIV and resistance to that, which is a really shocking story where it seems there are vested interests pretty much everywhere that, that science and technology can impact. Yeah, the blood story is horrifying. Blood is a business and blood transfusion is it's a global business with big players, both in the U.S. and all over the world. And when HIV appeared as a threat to this back in the 1980s, they sort of pushed back against any sort of regulation and foreign competition. They wound up spreading tainted blood. And it's especially bad throughout the hemophiliac communities, which needed it to survive. And it's basically known as a Holocaust those years within the hemophiliac community because huge percentages of that community simply died of HIV because the blood business refused to be regulated, refused competition in Japan. They didn't want healthy foreign blood coming in. So they argued that foreign blood was different and Japanese blood was safer. And they had all sorts of reasonings that it was really, and France did something similar where they didn't want the competi foreign competition coming in. So they kept out safe blood while they developed their own technologies. And in the meantime, tens of thousands of people, if not hundreds of thousands, died or spread the disease. We see vested interests more or less everywhere blocking change, just purely out of self-interest. In the corporate world, we, we sometimes talk about it as a mindset where it's when it's not in your interest to see something, you don't see it. But, but here it's, it's quite explicit that this is a matter of self-interest. And it goes back to the Luddites who saw their jobs as being jeopardized by the advancement of automated looms and machinery in, in, in textile business. But how do you overcome this? I remember the Kosian story about how the railroads plowed through this, and, and it seemed to happen at the court level. But presumably, if Parliament wanted to obstruct it, Parliament would have obstructed it. Does it play out in, Menser Olson would say, that the longer you go with kind of stable political architecture, the more entrenched the vested interests will become. And I think you challenge that notion. You say that it's, it's not about the amount of time that goes by with stable political systems, but really has a lot to do with anticipated threats. I do think that there is not a whole lot you can do domestically because it's just it's human behavior, right? You're looking out for your self-interest and our systems, whether you're geared for it or not, people are going to look out for their self-interest. The experiment with communism during the 20th century showed that even in those societies where people are born, bred, and raised to think about the, the community, people still look out for their, their self-interest and you get even worse corruption and stagnation. Rather, I do think it's accentuating the very real external threats, whether it's foreign competition, or whether it's things like climate change, aging, disease, we can use these. And maybe our experience with COVID has shown that, there's, that, that there are limits to that. Nevertheless, the Trump administration and Congress, which in their rhetoric tend to be anti-university, anti-science, anti-elite, and even against the spending and taxation that goes along with funding these things, they threw in big to support all the spending that needed to be done to get these tests, treatments, and ultimately vaccinations in record time in a shockingly partisan and domestically divided environment. So when the external threat comes along and it's real, we react. So I think 
And, and there's a danger in that countries will be prone to hype up an external threat to get this. I think we've done this, and so are the Chinese, the Russians, and that could be dangerous in ways that I discuss in the book. But I don't think we need to do that. There are very real threats out there. And again, in terms of disease, climate change, environmental degradation, and we can new ones are fearing all the time that we can rightfully, honestly point out and hopefully change the political calculus on this. But look, if there are winners and losers and the pie is increased, therefore the winners are presumably stand to gain more than the losers stand to lose, then why can't we simply use the political mechanisms to work out these jointly beneficial deals. Isn't that part of the story about democracy? If we have a well-functioning democracy, we should be able to structure these deals. We don't necessarily need the urgency of external threat to make it happen. I think we sometimes you can't, right? I, there was a, the attempt in the 80s, 90s, 2000s to try and compensate those workers who are hurting from technological change and globalization with things like training programs to hopefully skill them up for the new, and that works for a few, but if you're you know, in your 30s or 40s and you've been spending years in a coal mine, you're not gonna suddenly go work on a solar farm or be a software programmer, right? That's just not in the cards. Providing subsidies for education for your kids would be nice. But one attempt for this was basically Obamacare and the healthcare initiatives, but they weren't linked explicitly together, so people didn't make that connection. So the folks who were winning from globalization and technological change, said, I don't want to pay this money to subsidize healthcare for these losers. Why, they should go work for it. I did. So because they're not linked in our minds, we deal with them separately. The compensation aspects of the politics often seem like you're punishing the winners to help out these non-performers, as opposed to compensating the losers of technological change and globalization, which come hand in hand. How does the threat actually change that calculus? Does it make the losers more willing to accept being losers or does it provide the politicians with the rhetorical means to get the winners to feel less bad about being winners? How does it actually work? Does it have to work through public awareness or is it simply the awareness of the political leadership that matters? The political leadership is key, but I think the greater the awareness, the better. Whenever we've gone through a lot of these external threats here or other countries, often there is a willingness on both sides. The losers are willing to accept a lot of the sacrifices and the winners are willing to pay more higher in, in taxes or subsidies or status or whatever have to compensate. So I think it's people sort of coming together in a sense of mutual self-sacrifice because there comes a sense of status. Schools and teachers were getting you know, beaten up for years in the public media until COVID came along. And all of a sudden, they're frontline workers, right? They're heroic ones teaching the kids. And same with other frontline workers who manage the grocery stores or in the hospitals. So for a while, while we're going through the emergency, they became high status. We got to throw our resources at them. And now that it's subsiding, we're getting back to sort of normal politics. But I do think we see this on a regular basis. And again, the temptation then becomes to hype up a threat. And we see our politics do this all over the place. And there are dangers in that. But again, there are real threats and real concerns. We don't need to hype stuff up. I was wondering if you walked through some of the case studies. So I thought Israel was a fascinating case study because right now we think of Israel as a startup nation. But when we go back to the 1950s and 60s, it was like kibbutz nation. They were growing onions and, and stuff. That was, that was sort of their pride. How did this transformation take place? So the, the two messages of the book, and some of it is definitely aimed at economists, is most economists, when I read the debate, 
think that innovation is a domestic story and an institution story. If you get the domestic institutions right, innovation will flow. And that's, again, that's the Douglas North, the Ronas and story. I'm saying no, it's an international story. And we talked a little bit in the terms of domestic versus international threats. And it's not just an institution story. You don't have to just give the institutions. You need to get the networks, which is what Israel did. Because Israel during the 60s was this quasi-socialist agricultural state. No way you would bet on them as being a technological leader a generation henceforth. But they encountered a drastic flip in their, in their threat scenario. Up until the 60s, it was a fairly divided country. And it had a, it did not face a hostile, as hostile an environment. The Arab countries, Muslim countries surrounding them were divided amongst themselves and some were secretly helping Israel. So Israel was relatively secure externally, but it was fighting among different factions internally. That flips in the late 60s, when the Arabs begin to unite against Israel and the Israelis are now facing this cohesive threat. And the, the second generation of Israeli citizens are being, being reaching adulthood and they're more sort of thinking of themselves cohesive as Israelis rather as these individual factions. And what they do is they start these networks. They realize that innovation really matters. So they create the, the, they subsidize the research and the education, all those institutions that the economists care about, but they start creating networks. Internally, they circulate, they started in the military, these elite military units where they start bringing in the best and the brightest to study and train in technologies oriented towards defense, but with civilian applications. So electronics, software, hardware, in addition to weapon systems. And then after several years in these military education and research environments, they let them cycle out into the private sector where they start forming their own companies. And then over time, these people in the private sector will cycle back into government so they understand science policy and what government can do and then cycle back out. So they create these networks between government and the private sector so that they know each other and they have knowledge of what other, each other can and cannot do. And the result was you get these fairly competitive companies domestically, but they don't get how to do marketing, distribution, financing internationally. So what the, supported by the Israeli government, what these people do is they start forging networks internationally, tapping into the Jewish communities in New York on Wall Street so they understand finance, over in Silicon Valley so they understand marketing and distribution in terms of high-tech companies. And they bring those folks over to Israel to consult, to work, to help out, and they will send some of their people over into the U.S. into these networks. So they start developing these networks, not just domestically, but internationally. Because science and engineers get science and engineering, and they know how to build prototypes. A, they don't get necessarily marketing, finance, distribution. You need to be integrating these folks into these networks, and the government was very supportive. Same story in Taiwan, very similar story in Taiwan, right? Taiwan, relatively agricultural basket case, protected by the United States. But as recognition begins to slip away from Taiwan and China begins to rise as we get into the 1970s, they begin to worry about their own ability to survive as a state. So they start forging, they start pumping resources into domestic innovation with these government research institutes around both hardware and software. They'll ultimately focus on hardware, whereas Israel will focus more on software. And then they start establishing networks, pumping these people out into the private sector, back into the government, out to the private sector, and then establishing networks with the expat Chinese community in Silicon Valley, in, on Wall Street, around the world, so they can understand how to create globally competitive companies that are funded globally, that are marketing, glo distributing globally. So it's about the creation of these networks. So it's not just a domestic story, it's an international story. 
And it's not just an institutional story, it's a network creation and maintenance story. And the reason Ireland, to bring them back in, falls in between is they get that public good part. They get the institutional part of funding education and research and development and tax breaks. They don't really do the networking aspects. So you have sort of a middle result in Ireland, but they don't sort of build those internationally competitive corporations that you see coming out of Taiwan and Israel. Then I think the corollary to that would be that some of these European countries, like like France, for instance, and Spain and, and Italy, they seem to have a lot of the prerequisites, but they don't seem to be at the forefront of, of innovation. And your argument would be, in part, it's because they haven't really faced any kind of serious external threat in the, in the post-war period. I delved into a handful of country cases for the book and in my own research and my own work and life experience. But I can't, I'm not an instant expert on dozens and dozens of countries. So I really do not know the France experience or the Spain experience, but I would argue, and it was statistics, you can get a sense of this. I was able to test in the book statistically. And the book uses all sorts of different measures. And we've got qualitative case studies and quantitative stuff. So methods people can have a ball. But when you look at them, they're, you're right. They're not facing the external threat, either economically or security wise, that would motivate them to put in that extra e effort, especially Spain to innovate in a globally competitive way in the same way that the U.S., Taiwan, Japan, Korea, Israel, and a few others are. The U.S. story is interesting because I think in the 1950s, there was an awareness of the Sputnik and the threat of Russia. And this jump-started a lot of innovation in the U.S., in particular in Silicon Valley. So Steve Blank has this story that he tells about how Silicon Valley was really the offspring of military spending that began in the 1950s with Fred Turman at Stanford and so forth. That takes you up through the 60s and the 70s and the Cold War period and so forth. From about 1989 until sometime fairly recently, the U.S. by many measures was really short on real legitimate threats. And yet there seems to be quite a bit of innovation that took place. And the U.S. seems to be at the forefront of a lot of the, the innovation, certainly at the corporate level. Is that a mischaracterization? I mean, is the threat of after 9-11, the threat of terrorism, was that sort of sufficient to motivate investment and in innovation? Was it the threat of China that people have become increasingly concerned about? How does the U.S. experience support or undermine the argument that you're making? So one, it does, these threat processions don't turn on a dime. They don't ramp up in a month. They don't disappear in a month. So it takes years for, you know, these opinions to, to change. But I would argue you did see it after the end of the Cold War. We continued on the sense of the threat, but there also became a rise that we saw it during the late Clinton and into the Bush administrations and then onwards sort of anti-science, anti-elite, especially in biology, going, filtering through the politics and then politicians taking advantage of them in an opportunistic manner. Again, we regularly see politicians saying, why do you, we need to spend your tax dollars on these darn universities that are corrupting our youth or these research projects, these moonshots, these NASA or any of these things that you're never going to, this is a waste of tax dollars. I'm going to give you tax cuts. Why are these things that are taking away your jobs? We should be defending our old industries rather than investing in this. And we'll probably see this around trucking, right? Because to the degree that automated driving can really come to fruition, the most direct threat is going to be truckers. And they have unions and they have, I assume they vote. And there are, I don't know what the numbers are, but I'm going to assume hundreds of thousands, if not millions of them. Although they're not geographically concentrated, I imagine. So they may not have the political might that say the steel industry 
or the auto industry or other industries might to defend against innovation. And some can argue that the rescue of the American auto industry itself was sort of this defensive protective maneuver that it should have gone under in the financial crisis and been replaced by something more innovative. But the politics were that they had the vote, so they got the defense and they got the rescue. So if you're in the world of science and technology, as I am, it's really in your best interest to create a hype around threats, to emphasize the threats, to emphasize the threat that, say, China or Russia or a pathogen or terrorism might be causing to the U.S. In a way, this kind of helps me to understand a bit why here in California, we've probably been the most aggressive in anti-COVID lockdown policies and so forth. And, and it's those parts of the country that are not really at the forefront of science and technology that have been the most resistant to those sorts of policies. And I think the biggest beneficiaries of this last couple of years have been the tech companies or have been big tech companies. Do you think that in a way the Ukrainian crisis has in a perverse way, is it, is it good for the development of science and technology and in Europe in particular, now that Europeans are starting to become a little bit more aware of the threat that they're facing? I would bet it would. In the book, which was published in 2016 in the final chapter, as a physicist, I believe that science, when it's working right, can be used to not just explain and control the world, but help you predict what's going to happen next. So I bring that culture into my social science work. So I think if yourself is really any good, you should be able to make some informed predictions about what's going to happen. And that'll, maybe that'll wind up blowing up in the end. But in the, in the last chapter, I, I make some predictions and there's a chart in there. And I think Poland is one where I think is going to do well because I feel that it's balanced. I felt that that balance at the time of extra, internal external threats was such that they would pump money into innovation. I think that Eastern Europe, all these countries bordering Russia, they're going to start to be willing to pump more money and resources into innovation and politically be able to bargain to allow it, to support it and allow it to happen. So in my own retirement fund, I was actually being able to look at some sort of these exchange traded funds that deal in Central and Eastern Europe with some of these countries saying, yeah, maybe I should put some money into those to see what happens. So yeah, I do think we'll see them as the longer this persists and the more Russia is a real existential threat to these countries. And it is in, in, in no uncertain way, they're going to start pumping money in because even if they're not going to develop their own weapon systems and defense systems, they need to earn the foreign exchange that will give them access to these defensive technologies. And the only way they can do that is through a competitive economy. But you point out also that we don't need this to be a military threat. It could be a pathogen. It could be global warming. So anytime we create awareness around a external threat to the collectivity, this is going to reduce resistance to investment in science and technology. And so you, you actually emphasize that if we could somehow create more awareness around global warming and have people viscerally view this as thing that is akin to a national threat, then this would overcome some of the, the resistance would basically make it easier for the losers to get out of the way, so to speak. I think we are seeing that. We are seeing electric vehicle adoption is slowly picking up. I think we do see people shifting into these new uh, the, um, vegetable-based food products like Beyond Meat, et cetera. All of these aspects are beginning to get more investment and attention, not just from the private sector, from the public sector as well. Now, obviously, your environmentalists are going to say it's not enough. And I'd agree, but their people are beginning to support their governments in these investments and in help and both in spending and regulation 
to foster greater technological change in these areas. It's slow because the loser industries, and I don't want to just blame oil because we're consumers of carbon-based industries and we benefit tremendously. So I think it's, well, oil producers and distributors are part of the problem. So are we as consumers. But they pointed the finger, it basically we're pushing off responsibility. We're all responsible for this together. And we all have to sort of bear some of these costs and risks and moving into the future. But we see both ourselves as consumers and the oil companies, the carbon-based energy companies, resisting these changes and pushing at it through their elected representatives. So individual consumers, they're willing to tolerate higher prices around energy if it means that it's going to be something that's greener. We definitely see this in the surveys and some behavior, but I think we need to see it more in real behavior. Every time gas prices go up, we shake our fists at the politicians and they take advantage of that. But we need, with the better we connect and we can connect this and say, look, I'm willing to pay a higher cost. Yes. Add some taxes onto my gas bill if those taxes go towards climate change, real climate change solutions. I think people are so, going to be willing to do that. And you see this in the surveys. In the book, you say that you think your argument is compelling enough that people in the economics world will be convinced. But you say that political scientists are going to be your toughest audience. Why do you think political scientists would find this argument difficult to swallow? What is it? Dr. Hill thyself? So yeah, political science and all sorts of other fields, in economics, sociology, history, the study of science and technology has taken off where they have their own journals, their own subfields, their own professors, but not in political science, except maybe around security or on weapon systems. And I think it comes back to competition in that economists are competing, not just in universities, but in government, in private sector for funding, attention, all the things that economists want. So they seem need to innovate in their own, in their own fields. And this is an area for them to innovate in a way that's relevant to their constituencies. But I think political scientists have a much smaller constituency, right? To the extent that they'll inform political campaigns, this is probably irrelevant, but most of, you don't see political scientists being featured on CNBC. You do see economists, right? You don't see them on Bloomberg. You see a lot more economists in policymaking circles than you see political scientists. So I think it's, we're too incestuous. So political science tends to focus on the same questions, dozen questions or so, generation after generation after generation. And good stuff does come out and progress does come out, but they're very resistant to new questions. And one of the big examples of this is when the great financial crisis hit in 2007, 2009, it was pointed out that political science journals had, even the ones that focused on political economy, had not published much on finance in years and still didn't, despite the fact there was an enormous amount of politics around the financial crisis, its causes and its solutions. It's just, it's, it was a new question. It's a new field. So it's not very competitive. So last question. A lot of people talk about how divided the American political landscape is. And so I guess the question is, do you think that the emergence of external threats, or at least greater awareness of external threats, can suppress that division? In your story, I think you've got this internal conflicts and external conflicts, and they sort of are evolving independently of one another. And then when the external conflict gets to be greater than the internal conflict, that stimulates the investment in science and technology. But, but is there kind of a feedback loop where the, the strength of the external threat can maybe suppress some of the conflicts? Definitely. Politics, and I'd argue a lot of economics, is all about 
in groups and out groups and how they get formed and how they change over time. So to the degree that, and ultimately they have to come down to real threats and opportunities. You can make up stuff, but only for so long until it bites you in the butt. So ultimately to the degree that these external threats are real, I'm hopeful for going forward, but I do worry about us, the Chinese, we see the Russians doing it now, fabricating or exaggerating external threats to the extent that we want, might wipe up accidentally getting into a conflict that we never intended or never needed, but for the fact that we need some sort of external threat in order to organize people into our preferred coalition. Politicians do this all the time, right? They, they create an awareness of a threat, real or, or fictional, right? Whether it's immigration or foreign imports or they manufacture these threats. But, but I think part of what you're saying is that, hey, there might be a strategic use for that if kept within limits, accelerate the development of these, these public goods. Yeah, there is. And I think great politicians are good at not just thinking about policy, but about combining that with building coalitions and campaigning, the marketing part. And folks like Trump is great at the marketing part, but he's not so thoughtful about the policy part, I would argue. And he can build some coalitions, but they're limited to a certain degree. Reagan, Clinton, Roosevelt's sort of combine these better. They tend to be better at mixing the policy, the campaigning, and the coalition building. And there is an art to that. And I think we as voters should always be on the lookout for politicians who have that vision and who are good at the, are skilled at the politics and are thoughtful about the policy. If you combine those three together, you've got some winners. Great, Zach, thank you for joining me today. The book is Politics of Innovation. Definitely worth a read, why some countries are better than others at science and technology. Thank you very much. Hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.